Now, by way of introduction to the subject matter of today's lecture, brethren, let me simply remind you that we're considering those aspects of pastoral oversight and government which pertain to the corporate life of God's people. Having demonstrated the great importance of this department of ministerial responsibility, we have spent the past week seeking to impart the various uh, principles that should regulate our conducting of the gatherings of God's people, and this has carried us right down to the matter of our public prayers, as we shall be called upon to give a primary place of leadership in the prayers of the people of God in their stated gatherings. And now, today, we complete our lectures for this semester by addressing the subject of cultivating skill in the public reading of the Word of God. Now, in thinking our way through the subject, we shall marshal our thoughts under four headings. First of all, the biblical basis for the public reading of the Scriptures. Then secondly, some practical guidelines for the public reading of the Scriptures. Then thirdly, some specific suggestions for cultivating the ability to read the Scriptures well in public. And then fourth, I want to give some concluding remarks regarding judicious commenting in conjunction with the public reading of the Scriptures. First of all, then, we take up the biblical basis for the public reading of the Scriptures in the stated gatherings of the people of God. And I have three subdivisions of this first heading. First of all, the history of the practice. Secondly, the explicit New Testament warrant for the practice. And then, thirdly, we shall consider the implicit warrant for the practice. All right? First of all, then, the history of the practice. That is, the history of the practice of reading the documents of inscripturated revelation to the covenant community of God's people. And if you would turn, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 31, we have a passage which, in my judgment, is foundational in this area of concern. In Deuteronomy 31, 1 to 8, Moses went and spoke all these words unto Israel. And in those words, the beginning of his final charge, he summarizes his own life and what God will do for them. He exhorts them to courage. He reminds them that the Lord will go before them. Verse 8, he will not fail nor forsake them. Therefore, they are not to be dismayed. Now, verse 9. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the set time of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel is come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people the men and the women and the little ones and the sojourner that is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn 
and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land whither you go over the Jordan to possess it. Now, four observations on this text. Number one, the responsibility is given to the official stewards of the public worship, namely the priests and the elders. Notice verse 9. Moses wrote the law, delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, and unto all of the elders of Israel, and Moses commanded them. So we see that the priest and the elders were the peculiar stewards of the book of the law, and that the command that that book of the law be publicly read to the covenant community is a peculiar responsibility to the appointed leaders in Israel. The second observation is this. This activity was to be performed at a set season of public corporate, divinely appointed celebration. This activity was to be performed at a set season of public, corporate, divinely appointed celebration. Verse 10, at the end of every seven years, in the set time of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel is come to appear before the Lord. So it was not an activity to be performed at the whim and will of the priest and the elders, but in conjunction with the set season of public, corporate, divinely appointed celebration, namely the Feast of Tabernacles. Thirdly, this activity was to be engaged in before all the congregation of God. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 gives the generic statement, When all Israel is come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place that he shall choose, then you have the specific in verse 12. Assemble the people, the men, the women, and the little ones, and the sojourner that is within your gates. So it was not to be an esoteric group who heard the public reading of the law, but the whole congregation of God, including the children and the sojourners that were within the gates of Israel. And then the fourth observation on the text is this, that the fundamental purpose for this activity is clearly described as a twofold purpose. The fundamental purpose is clearly described as a twofold purpose. The first is that by repetition, understanding and the responses of the fear and obedience of God may be renewed in those already familiar with the law. That by repetition, understanding and responses of the fear of God and obedience might be renewed in those already acquainted with the content of the law. Verse 12, 
all of these are to be gathered and the scripture or the book of the law is to be read that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law. So by repetition, there would be fresh understanding and the responses of the fear of God and obedience. But then the second purpose was that initial understanding and religious responses would be imparted to the new generation of Israelites, verse 13, and that their children who have not known may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land whether you go over the Jordan to possess it. So this divinely established practice had a divinely defined purpose, and we might call it the two-generation purpose. It was to pump fresh spiritual life into the existing knowledgeable generation, and it was to be instrumental to impart spiritual perspective and life to the upcoming or emerging generation. Now, when Israel forgot and departed from the Lord Jehovah, one of the most evident causes and effects of that departure is the abandonment of this practice. And when you trace out the history of the declension of Israel, you will find that the abandonment of this practice of the regular public reading of the book of the law was both cause and effect of that departure from Jehovah. And we find this out particularly in the recorded seasons of reformation and revival and return to Jehovah in which the rediscovery of the law and its public reading are central. And I want you to look at just two examples of this, one in Second Chronicles chapter 34 and the other in the book of Nehemiah. Second Chronicles chapter 34. Verses 1 to 7 give us the record of the purging of idolatry out of the land under the leadership of Josiah. Verses 8 to 13 record the repairing of the temple. So there is the purging away of the worship of false gods, and then the repairing of the place of God's appointment for the worship of the one true to God. Then in verses 20, 14 to 21, we have the discovery of the law and its being read to the king. Verses 14 to 21. Notice verse 15, Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought back word to the king, saying, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. And then the focus is upon the book as it is delivered to the king. And then in verses 22 to 28, we see the blessing upon Josiah for this discovery and response to what was revealed in the book. When he hears the book read, 
his heart is broken, his spirit is crushed, and we read verse 27, because your heart was tender and you did humble yourself when you heard his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, you have humbled yourself before me, rent your clothes, wept before me, I have heard you, I will gather you to your fathers, etc. Then in verses 29 to 33 and through to the end, we have the public reading of the book of the law resulting in nothing short of national restoration to Jehovah. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants and the priests and the Levites, the people, now notice, both great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord and the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord etc and they recommitted themselves to the demands of that law the last verse all his days they departed not from following the Lord the God of their fathers so we could say in a very real sense this national restoration was both precipitated by the public reading of the law and then it was perpetuated by that practice being reinstated. And then in Nehemiah we have a similar example at a much later period in the history of God's people in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, and verse 2, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the broad place that was before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and of those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then you know the results of this that there was a revelation of their sin and of their need. There was brokenness, and an unusual thing happened. Uh, God calls them not to a season of weeping and of humbling, but to be thankful that there's been a rediscovery of the book of the law, the inscripturated revelation of God. And we read in verse 18, day by day, from the first day until the last, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the ordinance. So here we see again the season of national restoration in conjunction with the reinstitution of the practice of the public reading of the inscripturated documents to the covenant community according to the mandate of God. So, as we seek to establish the scriptural basis for the public reading of the scriptures, we see something of the history of this practice, first of all, in the mandated practice that God himself instituted and its decline and its reinstitution. 
And then you see in the pattern of synagogue activity, this is all again under the history of the practice, the history under the original institution. Then we've looked at in the second place of what happens when that practice falls uh, into, um, what should we say, when the practice is no longer practiced, falls into disuse and is reinstituted. But then we notice in the history of this practice the place of the public reading of the scriptures in the pattern of synagogue activity. As you know from your other studies, there was no direct revelation regulating conduct in the gatherings of the synagogues. God had clearly mandated the activities that were to transpire in temple ritual and in temple worship but not so with regard to synagogue activity. But believing God to be the Lord of providence, we see the strategic place of synagogues throughout the Roman Empire and of synagogue activity in the initial penetration of the gospel into the Roman Empire. And the pattern and practice of synagogue activity is very clearly highlighted in certain portions of both the Gospels in the book of Acts will only look at a couple specimen passages. Luke chapter 14. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. In conjunction with our Lord himself, we read, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and a fame went out concerning him through all the region round about and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he entered, as his custom was, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book, or the roll, of the prophet Isaiah. And he opened the book, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he anointed me to preach, etc. Verse 20, He closed the book, or the roll, or scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say, and here we have an insight as to the ordinary pattern of an integral part of synagogue activity. There was the reading of the prophets, and then the one who would read, or another, would then become the official commentator or expounder, and would then speak with the text having been read in the hearing of the people. And we see this again in Acts chapter 13. And Paul took advantage of this practice. Acts chapter 13 and verse 14. But they passed through from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So here was the pattern of the reading of the law and of the prophets, and then the expectation that a local teacher or rabbi would stand, or in this case an itinerant rabbi, would stand and bring a word of exhortation or instruction. Just one other text, chapter 15 and verse 21. 
in the council at Jerusalem, one of the givens in the whole equation of attempting to come to a temporary expedient to defuse the tensions between Gentiles coming into the church with Jewish sensitivities, and then you have these Jewish teachers seeking to impose mosaic ritual upon people, one of the things they can assume in trying to sort this out, it's an integral part of the equation, is verse 21 of Acts 15. For Moses from generations of old has in every city those that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So the manner in which Moses was preached was the reading of the documents given to the covenant community through the instrumentality of Moses, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And so in the synagogue activity, there was this pattern in which the public reading of the scriptures was central to synagogue life. And in Douglas Bannerman's work, not James Bannerman, but Douglas Bannerman's one-volume work, there is an excellent section, pages 122 to 162, 122 to 162, 40 pages, and then 429 to 432, giving the evidence that the New Testament church took its basic form and structure of internal worship and activity from the structure of the synagogue, that it was very natural that God should providentially deposit a community of people that feared God, Jews and proselytes, aware and knowledgeable of Old Testament scripture in these synagogues throughout the Roman Empire, and that it is out of that framework of synagogue life and activity that some of the basic lines and dimensions of the New Testament church take their shape. I read now just a specimen quote out of Bannerman, page 132. After the reading of the Law and the Prophets, either by an official of the synagogue or by some qualified person or persons in his place, there followed an exposition of Scripture or a word of exhortation, as it was called by the rulers of the synagogue at Antioch when they invited Paul and Barnabas to speak to the congregation there. And then he alludes to the passage in Acts 13, which I just read. The rulers of the synagogue, or their president as representing them, were themselves responsible for this part of the service. And then on page 130, he writes, The worship of the synagogue was essentially just what it was in the great religious gatherings under Ezra and Nehemiah, in which, as we have seen reason to believe, the institution took its rise. When Bannerman addresses the question, where did the synagogue take its rise and its basic structure, he argues from the time of Nehemiah. The reading and exposition of the scriptures with prayer and praise formed the center and substance of the whole. So in the history of this matter of the public reading of the scriptures, we must not only seek to see it bottomed, as the old Puritans would say, upon the institution ordained of God, as we have seen in the Deuteronomy 31 passage, 
but then also its place in the providence of God in the pattern of synagogue activity. And then any historical overview of the subject must address uh, at least uh, briefly, and this is our fourth uh, heading under the history of the practice, its place in the churches of the Reformation. Its place in the churches of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had effectually taken the scriptures away from the ordinary man or woman in the pew. The service was conducted in Latin. There was this sacerdotalism in which the religious activities were carried on by the priest. You had the Latin Vulgate, translation of the scriptures in Latin, but the common plowman, the woman behind her sink in her kitchen, did not have the scriptures in her own vulgar or native tongue. The scriptures were effectively locked away and buried beneath all the rubble of the ritual, the formalism, and the works righteousness and sacerdotalism of the Roman church. But what the Reformation did was to give the scriptures back to the common man and to place them central in the worship of the people of God. In Baker's Dictionary of Practical Theology, in the section on the history of worship, there is a subheading of worship in the Reformation, and the author of this particular essay writes as follows. For this reason, the reading of the scriptures in the congregational service occupied one of the central places. This was particularly true in the early days when a good many of the worshipers could not read for themselves. Calvin and those who came after him usually followed the practice of reading consecutively through both the Old and the New Testaments at each service. Such a practice meant that even though one might not be able to read at home, at least one did hear the scriptures read continuously on each Lord's Day. Furthermore, the custom of reading the Psalms and of singing metrical versions of them very frequently gave further in instruction to the uneducated. Later Reformed churches have tended to neglect this practice of consecutive readings, nor does it seem of such great importance in a day when most possess their own Bibles and can read them privately. The important thing in all of this, however, was the belief that God, through the Scriptures, addressed His people. Now, when you come into the 1600s, at the time of the uh, formation of the Westminster Confession of Faith, as you know, a year later, appending that and adopted by the church in Scotland is what they call their directory for public worship. And in the addition of the confessions and directory for public worship and other uh, documents that we handle in our bookstore, the one put out by the Free Presbyterian Church, you'll find this on page 375. And there is a section, the title of which is, Of Public Reading of the Holy Scriptures. And we do well to listen to this statement. Reading of the Word in the congregation being part of the public worship of God, wherein we acknowledge our dependence upon Him and subjection to Him, and one means sanctified by Him for the edifying of His people is to be formed 
be performed by the pastors and teachers. And then he goes on to say that does not mean that only ordained clergymen can read the scriptures. And then what is to be read? All the canonical books of the Old and New Testament, but none of those which are commonly called Apocrypha, shall be publicly read in the vulgar tongue out of the best allowed translation distinctly that all may hear and understand. How large a portion is to be read at once is left to the wisdom of the minister. But it is convenient that ordinarily one chapter of each testament be read at every meeting, and sometimes more, where the chapters be short or the coherence of matter requires it. They acknowledge that the chapter-verse divisions were not the most judicious at points. It is requisite that all the canonical books be read over in order that the people may be better acquainted with the whole body of the scriptures and ordinarily where the reading in either testament ends on one Lord's Day, it is to begin the next. You can imagine the joy we had when after coming to the conviction of this practice out of the scriptures, we discovered the old directory for public worship and realized that we were in a very good tradition that this was one time mandated by the directory for public worship upon all of the ministers in the Scottish National Church. Well, that's a little brief thumbnail sketch of the history of the practice, its original institution in the covenant community of Israel, its reinstitution in periods of national reformation and revival, its place in the synagogue activity by divine providence, and its place in the churches of the Reformation. But now then, the biblical basis we consider not only in terms of the history of the practice, but secondly, the explicit New Testament warrant for the practice. I said we had three subdivisions for this first heading. Biblical basis, we've looked at the history. Now, the explicit New Testament warrant for this practice. Turn, please, to Colossians 4 and verse 16. Colossians 4 and verse 16. Perhaps we can back up to verse 15. Salute or greet warmly the brethren that are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in their house. And when this epistle has been read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you also read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, it's interesting that the context, again, is a church context. Greetings are to be conveyed to the church that meets in their house. And when this epistle has been read among you, cause that it be read in the church of the Laodiceans. Wilson, in his commentary, comments on this verse, the letter from Laodicea is probably the one we know as Ephesians, for its impersonal nature suggests that it was intended as a circular letter. It is clear from Ephesians 6, 21 and 22 that Tychicus was also the bearer of this letter, and since he had to pass through Laodicea on his way to Colossae, he would leave a copy there before delivering the Colossian letter. This verse not only shows that Paul's letters were intended to be read to the assembled company of believers when they met for worship, but also 
that they were from the first intended for a wider circulation than their initial destination would imply. So here we have an explicit New Testament warrant for the practice for the public reading of the Word of God in the assembly of God's people. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5.27 is even a stronger text. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 27. Again, following an injunction to greet warmly all of the brethren with a holy kiss, now here's a solemn adjuration. I adjure you by the Lord. That is, I am charging you in the full consciousness of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I adjure you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the brethren. Now, I believe there is a good case for deductive reasoning and argumentation that the epistles should be expounded, but we don't need deduction to know that they should be read. We have the express statement of the Scripture itself. I adjure you that this epistle be read unto all the brethren. doesn't say read by them in their private devotions, make a copy for every member, though that may be an excellent idea and I doubt God would be displeased if someone with the skill of a scribe said I'm going to take upon myself the burden of copying this epistle so every member of the church at Thessalonica has his own copy I don't know how any elder could have risen up and said no no you must not do that but whether that would have been a noble act of Christian charity, one thing is clear. The leaders of the assembly were under a solemn adjuration of apostolic authority to read the epistle unto all of the brethren. And then Revelation 1 and verse 3. Revelation 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he, singular, that reads, and they, plural, that hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written therein for the time is at hand. The indication is that there was a reader and many hearers. You see that? Blessed is he that reads and they that hear. And then, of course, the, what I regard to be the classic text, and this was the text with which God convinced my own judgment many years ago when we were wrestling in the early days of our life together how we should structure our worship services. This was the text that to me was conclusive. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13. As we see through the so-called pastoral epistles, the lines of New Testament church life being clearly etched for that time when apostles would lead the scene. Here is the directive given to Timothy, verse 13. Till I come, give heed to, and the definite article is there, the reading to exhortation to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. And here we find very, very strong shadows of synagogue concepts, framework of activity, and even terminology. The reading, the exhortation, and teaching 
based upon it. So he says, till I come, Timothy, you as the leader of the worship and life and direction there in the church at Ephesus, pay close attention, pros eche, occupy yourself with, devote or apply yourself to the reading. That is, Timothy, give due place to the public reading of the inscripturated documents. Fairbairn, commenting on this passage in his exposition of the pastoral epistles, writes, Till I come, the present Erkomai, probably to express the purpose of an early return to Ephesus, give attention to the reading, the exhortation, the teaching. The definiteness indicated respecting these things by use of the article seems to point to them as well-known. Stated employments connected with ministerial agency. The reading, therefore, will most naturally be taken for that kind of reading which formed part of the public service of the church, namely, the reading of Scripture, chiefly, as yet, if not entirely, Old Testament Scripture. Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, however you wish to pronounce it, appears to have thought of Scripture and nothing else as indicated by the expression and then he quotes that uh, expression and gives an indication of this in the writings of Chrysostom. And so undoubtedly the expression is used, and then very interestingly he refers to Acts 13.15, and then 2 Corinthians 3.14, whenever the law is read, a veil is upon their minds, indicating that in the Jewish community the law was read as a regular practice. The exhortation and the teaching are understood by Chrysostom, the former of social or mutual interchange of sentiments with a view to edification, the other of public discourse. So Timothy, as the one charged with regulating behavior in the church, chapter 3 and verse 15, is, Lenski suggests, administratively to watch over the public reading of the scriptures to see that it is done, done regularly, and done well. I rather believe that the position of Fairbairn and the other commentators is the right one, that he is not administratively, but personally in his own ministerial activity, for that's the focus of this section of the epistle, is to make sure that the public reading of the scripture is given its proper place in the public worship of the new covenant community. So I say on these four texts I would rest the explicit New Testament warrant for the practice, but then there is strong implicit warrant. And I give you four lines of evidence for that. Implicit warrant. Number one, it is rooted in the nature and intent of Scripture itself. This practice of the regular, consecutive, public reading of the Word of God is rooted in the nature and intent of Scripture itself. By its nature, I refer to the classic passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable thoroughly to furnish the man of God. Well, if the whole of Scripture is profitable, then, Matthew 4, 4, quoting from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word 
that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God has given us many mysterious things in Scripture, many things difficult to be understood, things of unequal evenness, of what we might call density of apparent usefulness, given all of those qualifications, nonetheless, there is not one luxurious word in the whole of inscripturated revelation. There's not one luxury or extra. Of all the things God could have revealed and how many things we wish he had, he's revealed what he has revealed and man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I don't need presently to understand its profit to be profited by it. How many times have you in the discipline of your own devotional reading simply read something because it was part of your passage and your commitment to read through the scriptures once a year, once every two years, and lo and behold, two weeks, two months, two years down the road, the Spirit of God brought to remembrance that thing you threaded through your eyes as a matter of duty, saw no profit in it, but in a given situation you saw, oh, how profitable that word was. So the implicit warrant rests, first of all, in the nature and intent of Scripture itself. Secondly, it is rooted in the reality of Christ's prophetic office. It is rooted, the implicit warrant, in the reality of Christ's prophetic office. As the great prophet of his church, revealing the will of God, we are commanded to hear him. Acts 2, 22 and 23. The Lord God shall raise up from among you a prophet like unto me. To him shall ye hearken in all things. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall not hearken unto him shall be cut off from among the people. So that Christ as the great prophet is the one who has spoken in the prophets. It is the spirit of Christ in the prophets testifying of his own sufferings and of the glories to come. Peter says it was the Spirit of Christ speaking in the prophets. Therefore, when we read the prophets as we're doing Sunday nights, Christ the prophet is standing among us. I get the goosebumps thinking of it. When that conception grips you and grips your people, you don't want visions and flutterings of wings. Christ is present in his own word, speaking his mind. And you have a beautiful example of that in very strong language in passages such as Revelation 2 and 3. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Oh, someone was reading it. But what was being read was the present voice of the Spirit. Not let him hear what the Spirit said. You look at that entreaty at the end of all seven letters. It's in the present tense. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. And his voice is the voice of Scripture. And the voice of the Spirit is the voice of Christ. So the implicit warrant then is rooted not only in the nature and intent of Scripture itself, but rooted in the reality of Christ's prophetic office as it interfaces with Scripture. Thirdly, it is rooted in the necessity of setting a pattern for our own people. As the ministers of God, we are to be a pattern to our people in all things. Titus 2.8. In all things, showing yourself a tupos, a type, a pattern of good works. And we need, as the leaders of the worship of God's people, to set a pattern of thorough exposure to the whole of Scripture, 
We need to set a pattern of how to shape prayer by the Word. And this is the great benefit, you see, of consecutive reading through the Scriptures. And if we take the things that we heard last week and frame our public prayers by the public reading of the Word, we're setting an example to our people of how what we read in Scripture becomes fuel for what we pray. I know it will embarrass him to say it, but I would have said it if he weren't here anyway. I can almost always tell where Mr. Dixon has been in his devotions during the week by his prayer Sunday morning. I'm sure you've noticed that. Well, that's the way it ought to be. And we need to set that example right in the assembly of God's people so that the psalm we have read, if we use the psalms for our call to worship, or whatever portion we may use, and then as we read the Word of God before our more lengthy intercessory prayer, our people need to see how we take what we have read and turn it into the very warp and woof of the substance of our prayers. And we need to set an example of how to extract principles from the Word of God without going into detailed exegesis. That's the great benefit that we'll see later on of judicious comments in which you're not giving a detailed exposition of the passage read, but you're extracting a principle that lies right on the surface of the passage. And in so doing, you are setting a pattern to your people of a responsible handling of the Word of God. And then the fourth implicit warrant is what I would say is this. It is rooted in the desirability of broadening the base of common knowledge of the Word of God among your people. Rooted in the desirability of broadening the base of common knowledge of the Word among your people. You see, we're ministering to a generation of Bible illiterates. And since, as you learned, one of the seven axioms of all preaching, we're to preach the Bible biblically. The Bible is its own best interpreter and illustrator. But you see, if you have a people ignorant of the basic contents of the Bible, you can't illustrate the Bible by the Bible without taking so much time to go back to the incident that you lose the unity of discourse and the thrust of rhetorical discourse. If you can't refer to David and Goliath, if you can't refer to the crossing of the Jordan, if you can't refer to the sons of Korah, if you can't refer to the taking of Jericho, if you can't refer to these incidents knowing that they register, then you can't illustrate the Bible with the Bible without having to go back and read all of the stories. So in a unique way in this generation, much like first century Christians, who were brought out of paganism and had no contact with the Old Testament, we have a tremendous task as pastors to broaden the base of the common knowledge of the Word of God among our people. Now granted, as they develop good devotional habits, they're doing that in their own private lives, yes. But what about those people that aren't converted and aren't doing that? Or what about those that are weak and inconsistent? We should be setting a standard in our public reading of the Word. All right? So, what have we done? Well, what I've attempted to do is to set before you the historical, uh, the biblical basis for the public reading of the Word of God by looking at the history of the practice, the explicit warrant for the practice, 
and then the implicit warrant for the practice. And uh, what we'll do now is take our little break, and then we'll come back, and we'll take up our last three heads, and we'll move much more quickly. But I did want to lay a solid foundation in the Word of God, and I hope I've convinced your judgment. So when we check up on you after you leave this place and you don't have a practice of consecutively, publicly reading the Word of God, I'm going to ask you what new light did you get that warranted overthrowing the practice, okay? Good. Well, having sought to lay before you in the previous hour the biblical basis for the practice of the public reading of the Word of God, perhaps to be more accurate, the consecutive reading of significant portions of the Word of God. Now, our second major heading is some guidelines for the public reading of the Scriptures. And I have three basic uh, categories of guidelines, each of which is framed by a question. Question number one, what translation should be used in the public reading of the Scriptures? Now, this question can only be answered by considering several variables. And among those variables are these. Number one, it ought to be a proven translation. A translation produced by men who labored to translate the scriptures with a high view of scripture and a proper theology of translation. And within that category, I would put the authorized version, the old 1901, the new King James version, with less enthusiasm, the misnamed New American Standard Version, which is not a New American Standard Version. It is a new translation, and I resent the fact that they have really thrown a curve at people by using that name. Mm -hmm. I would not put, of course, good news for modern man, the Living Bible, Phillips, Williams, nor would mm -hmm. I even put the NIV in that category. And if you wonder why, wait for a couple of months when Pastor Bob's book will be off the press from Banner of Truth on the subject of translations. Furthermore, it should preferably be a version with paragraphed structure. And that's one thing I could have wished that they did with the new King James was to have put it in paragraph structure, though they do clearly mark the paragraphs by a verbal, by a uh, numerical uh, thicker number so you can know where the paragraph is. A paragraphed version is excellent for us and our people, constantly reminding us that there is, in the words of Professor Murray, a universe of discourse. And then it ought not only to be a proven translation, preferably a paragraphed version, but a version widely owned and used by your people. And that may mean in some cases you'll have to accommodate to the existing version while you instruct them concerning the way of versions more perfectly. <laughs> now, in making the choice of what translation to be used, take into consideration the background and age of the majority of the people. If you go into a little rural place, 
where the King James Bible was good enough for Paul, it's been good enough for them, then you don't immediately start reading from the 1901. You don't immediately start reading from the New American Standard or even the New King James. Take into consideration the background and age of the majority of the people. Take into consideration the prevailing understanding of what a translation is. A lot of people do not understand how a translation comes to us. You don't want in the reading of the scriptures to undermine their confidence in the scriptures. Thirdly, take into consideration your own acquaintance with a particular translation. And then perhaps occasionally digress and use a different translation for the sake of greater freshness and accuracy. From time to time, some of us who read the scriptures publicly will do that. So, guidelines for the public reading of the scripture. The first pertain to the question, what translation should be used in reading? The second is, what portions should be selected for the reading? What portions should be selected for the reading? And I trust that the material in the previous hour was sufficient to convince you of the desirability in due course of the consecutive reading of the whole compass of Scripture. Spurgeon's comments in his essay, Commenting on Commenting, it's in the book, Commenting and Commentaries by Banner of Truth. He has some very, very helpful things to say on pages 23 and 24 concerning this matter of the consecutive reading through the scriptures. And I will not uh, weary you with reading that lengthy quote, but the bottom line is, he says, that no matter how frequently we preach to our people in the course of a ministry that is solidly expository, there will be many portions of the Word of God that are never expounded, and therefore they will not publicly be brought before the minds and consciences of our people unless they are read in the stated seasons of worship. And then I refer you, of course, to that section in the uh, Directory for Public Worship in which the uh, reasons for the consecutive reading of the scriptures, there they mandate Old and New Testament at each service. And that's something that uh, I think I'm going to begin to agitate for. That'll double the pace at which we get through the scriptures. Now, obviously, and some of you have not yet been with us long enough to see us come to such a section, uh, use good sense when you come to genealogies, when you come to the specific details of all of the ceremonies of the Levitical system of worship, when you ex come to even expanded and extended apocalyptic sessions, sections such as Ezekiel 40 to 48, I know of no way to turn anyone off more quickly to the consecutive public reading of the word than if someone were to come right at the time you started in one of the sections in Leviticus and you read on and on and on and on without summarizing these three chapters deal with this aspect of ritual worship. The great lesson is God's worship is regulated by God himself, and he's making plain to his people every aspect of approach in cultic worship must be spattered with blood. 
and you summarize the gist of that portion without unnecessarily wearying your people with actually reading every word. So that would be the qualifying statement with reference to the question, what portion should be selected for reading? As a rule, plod right on as the Directory for Public Worship says, pick up on the next Lord's Day where you left off on the previous, but understand that in coming to some of these areas of genealogical uh, detail, details of ceremonies in the Old Covenant worship, expanded apocalyptic sections, summarizing and distilling the essence of the thrust of the mind of God may be the best way to secure edification. And then the third category of guidelines is in response to the question, what are the requisites of good public reading of the scriptures? What are the requisites of good public reading of the scriptures? And I'm going to very quickly give you six things. Number one, distinctness of articulation. This comes back to 1 Corinthians 14.9. Except you utter by the speech or the tongue words easy to be understood. Give full value to all the vowels. Don't be making contractions in your verbal patterns. They are not vowels. V-O-W apostrophe L-S, they are vowels. Full weight to all of the vowels. You do not have cardinal points, C-A-R-D apostrophe N apostrophe L, but you have cardinal points. Cardinal points. Now, you don't need to be ludicrous and say, now, this is the cardinal point. But neither do you see to say this is the cardinal point. You can say this is the cardinal point. Now, that doesn't sound unnatural. And then give adequate expression to the consonants. Words ending with T and D end with T and D, and they should not be silent T's or D's. You're not Frenchmen. If you said uh, Bousset to a Frenchman, you'd offend him. Is Bousset. The T is silent. But you're not Frenchman, all right? You're speaking Americanese, which is a form of prostituted English. <laughs> now, give full value to all the vowels, adequate expression to all the consonants. And that's why, generally speaking, any man who is speaking or reading doing this will have the problem with helping the problem of humidity in the air in the wintertime. You cannot help but spit if you are speaking properly in a public situation. Some of us spit more than others, uh, but spit you will and spit you must if you distinctly articulate because you're bringing the tongue against the teeth and often the tongue has some moisture on it and when the tongue projects it against the teeth, the teeth don't stop it all, some of it passes through the lips. Some is on the inner ring of the lips, and when you say peas in such a way that you aspirate your peas, you're going to spit, all right? <laughs> so spit you may, spit you must, but articulate is essential. All right, secondly, enough of my foolishness, correctness of pronunciation. What are the requisites of good public reading? Distinctness of articulation, correctness of pronunciation. And this 
is why you must read over the chapter out loud, at home, in your study before you ever attempt to do it in the pulpit, particularly when there are proper names. Work hard on them. Now, don't show off your little smattering of Hebrew. Pronounce them in an English way. All right? But pronounce them accurately. And it means at times you may have to really practice because when you read it, your mind will register, but when you actually try to get your tongue to do what your mind registers, it gets all twisted up. And there are times when I've held my breath wondering how I was going to get through a certain section where, you know, maher, halal, shalash, baz, and uh, all the rest, okay? And it's the problem. And so correctness of pronunciation. But then thirdly, and this is vital, brethren, accuracy of emphasis. Accuracy of emphasis in the public reading of the Word of God is vital. Broadus makes a very perceptive comment on this element of our concern on page 517. Good reading has an exegetical value helping to make plain the sense. It also brings out the full interest and impressiveness of the passage read. There are passages which have had a new meaning for us and an added sweetness. Ever since we heard them read, it may be long ago by a good reader. So accuracy of emphasis. When reading narratives, usually the key is in the verbs. Or sometimes it may be in strokes of description, and therefore let your emphasis fall by either pacing or by volume or by sometimes by slowing down the pace. Uh, in reading discourse, Many times I've read over a passage and said, well, where was the emphasis in that given passage? I did some of that in the reading of my own uh, scripture reading this morning to just refresh my mind in how different the whole emphasis can be in terms of uh, the very thing we're talking about. For example, my psalm this morning was Psalm 66. And I thought, look how different is the emphasis of the psalm if I read it this way. Psalm 66:10 For thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou layest a sore burden upon our loins. Thou didst cause men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. Now you see the emphasis there is upon the fact that it is God who brought the trials, who brought the blessing. But if we read, for thou, O Lord, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou layest a sore burden upon our loins. Thou didst cause men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. Now the emphasis is not so much upon the activity of God, but upon the results of that activity. You see that? Now you've got to ask yourself, in terms of your understanding of the passage, where does the emphasis lie? Where ought it to lie? 
And so accuracy of emphasis is absolutely vital in effective public reading of the Word of God. And it may mean there are times when you'll spend, it's a mystery to my wife, if I try to do my preparation for the reading of the Scriptures, if I'm leading the evening service, I don't like to be shut up in the study on a Sunday afternoon, so I'll try to sit down in the living room, and after I've been there for half an hour, she'll start talking. I'll say, honey, I'm still working. she say, you mean you're not the... You know, she just expects. You've read the Scriptures publicly for some of you, you can just do it like this. I said, no, no, I'm just not sure. And then it means sometimes I have to go and check Kyle and Dalish because I'm not sure where the emphasis should lie until I'm sure of the syntax in the original. So in the reading of the Scriptures, brethren, sometimes a lot of work is involved if there is to be accuracy of emphasis. And what is necessary now to attain this accuracy of emphasis? I've already begun to allude to it. Well, let me suggest three things. Under accuracy of emphasis, the things necessary are, number one, an intelligent grasp of the contents, the concepts contained in the passage. Excuse me. An intelligent grasp of the concepts contained in the passage. Secondly, a sympathetic identity with the passage. The author felt something. The speaker felt something. You must seek to feel with him. How any man could read Galatians 1 this way, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be anathema. Now how, how ludicrous. Paul's soul was white hot. And we must not read as though we were preaching it, but surely we must read as though we are empathetically involved with the sentiments of that passage. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be anathema. Again I say unto you. So there must be sympathetic identity with the passage and then thirdly, if you're to read with proper emphasis, there must be an imaginative sensitivity to the passage. An imaginative sensitivity to the passage. This is particularly true in narrative and historical passages. Seek to imagine the setting, the feelings, the actions. Try to see Sarah hiding behind her tent, giggling. And then the embarrassment when God says, why did you laugh? And she gets all red and says, well, I did not laugh. I mean, you've got to enter in and feel the passage if you're going to read it with any degree of proper emphasis. All right? So distinctness of articulation, correctness of pronunciation, accuracy of emphasis, which will depend upon an intelligent grasp of the concepts, sympathetic identity with the passage, imaginative sensitivity to the passage. Now the fourth commodity necessary for good public reading of the scriptures, variety of pace. In one sense, emphasis includes pace, but it is so vital, I want to underscore it as a separate point. Variety of pace. Many times a pause prepares people for something of greater importance or allows them to feel the weight of an important concept that has just been read. And then fifthly, adequacy of volume. Again, one of my pet peeves is preachers who don't preach with sufficient, sustained volume 
and men who read the scriptures at a level at which their low points drift off to where a person in the back row cannot hear them distinctly. Adequacy of volume. Then six, fitness of posture. And here I would say there are some among us who are not good models in this area. I'll not mention names. But I believe there is a dignity of posture, and my conscience is clear because he heard these things as well as all the other students. There is a dignity of posture in the public reading of the Word of God appropriate to the fact that we are reading the Word of God. And you never want the bell of your mouth to be buried. Therefore, I suggest that the Scriptures either be set out this way, and when you get into bifocal stage, it's great because you've got to read through the lower part of your glasses, so it naturally keeps you. If I got my head down this way, I can read the text. I've got to keep it on that under the line. So uh, some of those things are helpful. Before I had bifocals, I always had the practice of holding the scriptures up so it didn't hide my face just before the front row of the people and following with my finger so that I wasn't glued to the passage, and this is not offensive at all. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it, so that you are in eye contact. There will be some people who don't have their Bibles and will not be following. They'll be looking at you. And your physical posture and bearing will either be distracting or will enhance the impact of the word of God. And that's why it's important in the matter of your posture, how you hold your Bible, your shoulders, your chest, your head, your eyes, your mouth, Remember, you are reading the Word of God. You are not preaching the Scriptures. Preaching has its proper place. And when you read the old masters on this, they are all agreed that there ought to be a solemn dignity about your posture in this sacred exercise. Now, for an excellent example of what I regard as the finest finest expression of these principles is Alexander Scorby's reading of the scriptures. If you've not heard Alexander Scorby reading the scriptures, I even wrestled with uh, buying a set and giving you each one a cassette. I may still do that for a late Christmas present. And uh, with the understanding that you make a covenant with me that you'll listen to Scorby at least once a month for a few minutes. A wonderful example of someone who as a professional actor mastered the art of reading the scriptures in a very meaningful way. Many times when I've listened by the hour on a long trip to Alexander Scorby, I've said, Lord, how could he read with such empathy and understanding and not know the author of the book? It was always a mystery to me. But Alexander Scorby's reading of the scripture, as far as I'm concerned, is the finest example of these <clears throat> principles. All right? Now, do you think that's unreasonable? to require this kind of labor, to do this kind of reading in the light of our view of Scripture. If it is the Word of God, then does it not demand our best in its public reading? All right? Now we hasten to the third category, some specific suggestions for the cultivation of the ability to read the Scriptures well. The biblical basis for the reading of the Scriptures, some guidelines, We've addressed three questions. Now, some specific suggestions for the cultivation of the ability to read the Scriptures well. And I have two major subheadings. General cultivation, specific cultivation. 
General cultivation, as with all the other departments of oral communication, we must never lose sight of this twofold division of general and special preparation. General cultivation, specific cultivation. Broadus addresses this when he writes, he who reads well must, of course, be a master of correct pronunciation and must have acquired a distinct and easy articulation. Beyond these, everything is included in what we call expression. And power of expression, so far as it is not a natural gift, must be acquired by well-ordered practice. The practice ought usually to be in reading that with which one is well acquainted and in full sympathy. Besides such reading for practice, he should embrace every fit occasion of reading for the pleasure and profit of those who hear, selecting something full of interest so that he may forget himself in the sentiment of what he reads. And preachers inclined to be lugubrious that's sad or mournful, it's a word not used in our day, ought by all means to read in private some humorous selections in order to maintain the equilibrium. So if you're overly serious, he says, read Mark Twain in private till you laugh out loud. And of course, you who have children, you have a marvelous example to select something full of interest, Jack and the Beanstalk. And you read it in such a way that your kids can see that beanstalk going right up through the clouds and all the rest. That's what he's talking about. General cultivation. I would urge you in this matter to perhaps, if your wife is a woman of unusual constitution, to seek to secure her ears for a period of time each week to listen to you read. And then ask her to be your critic. Ask her to close her eyes as you read a narrative portion of the Word of God and ask her, can you see it coming to life as I read it? Or if not from the Word of God, from something that would be of interest to her, maybe a book she's reading, and try to read it and put yourself into the soul of a woman. Anything that forces you to exercise these empathetic, imaginative faculties as you give them general cultivation, so when you come to the matter of the specific cultivation of your ability to read a given portion of the Word of God well, those general disciplines will stand you in good stead. For some of you who do not articulate and pronounce your words distinctly and clearly, work on it in reading to your wife, in reading the Scriptures out loud in your own devotions, and even in your general conversation with your brethren, say, look, if I begin to drop off and have silent D's and T's, please remind me of it and help me. So that's what I mean by general cultivation. But then specific cultivation, I give you these five suggestions. Read the portion to be read in public in a careful, prayerful, reflective attitude as part of your preparation for the task of leading in worship. Read the portion to be read in a careful, prayerful, reflective attitude. Secondly, plan the structure of your specific public reading. 
What do I mean by that? Where are you going to emphasize? What are you going to emphasize? Where will you pick up your speed and your volume? And if necessary, make little marks in your Bible. There are many passages that I've quoted in this class where I have little marks of my own. I have little systems for speeding up, slowing down, etc., so that even my reading, rarely do I ever read you a quote that no matter how many times I've read it, I don't practice it out loud in my study so that when I read it to you here, it has the most impact possible. So I try to practice what I preach, brethren. This is not something I carry in my hip pocket. I have to work at it continually, as you must do the same. Plan the structure of emphasis, speed, volume, pacing. Thirdly, carefully work on all proper names of people and places. Use your Bible dictionary to make sure that the pronunciation is the generally accepted one. Be a terrible thing if you have a well-educated person with some background in the Bible who'd been turned off by the religion of his parents because they were hypocrites and for the first time he comes into the church and he hears some bumbler up there mispronouncing words that he says any half-educated man ought to know that that's not the way you pronounce it it's not the philistines as though they were second cousin to the bernsteins who lived down the street and owned the local and he could say if a man doesn't know any more than that why should I listen to him when he stands up to expound the scripture you can be an offense in nothing giving offense that the ministry be not blamed we say it isn't right that a man should be turned off for a little thing like that no it isn't right but the devil isn't too much concerned about what's right he's just concerned about turning people's ears off he's got no sense of scruples don't give him any fuel he doesn't need much so don't give him any fuel carefully work on proper names of people and places Dave corrected me. I gave you the wrong reference. I said Titus 2.8. It's 2.7. Check your references out. I obviously didn't check that one out. And trusted my memory, and so I made a boo-boo. But I'm thankful I was corrected by our brother. Fourthly, read the passage aloud in private as you hope to read it publicly. So you can sit at your desk and say, I'm going to emphasize this, emphasize that. It all seems very clear in your head. But now getting the hookup between your head, your diaphragm, the support control of the sufficient column of air, sometimes that's quite a different thing. And then fifthly, as in so many of these public disciplines, seek the input of competent critics. Seek the input of competent critics. And in that way you will cultivate, I trust, a growing ability to read the scriptures well in public. And then, fourth category, and we're coming in right on time, some concluding remarks regarding commenting on the scriptures. Should you or should you not make comments as you read the scriptures, particularly in consecutive reading of the scriptures? Well, of course, the precedent for such commenting would be Nehemiah 8.8. Kyle renders that passage, they explained and gave the sense. They explained and gave the sense. And I would urge you to put into your notes at the time when you are concerned to really wrestle through this matter, Spurgeon, in his essay on commenting, 
will help you to wrestle through with this whole question of whether or not you ought to make judicious comments. And I believe his case is unanswerable from a practical pastoral standpoint and from what I would call the overriding uh, analogy of Scripture on this whole matter. But if you are to comment, don't comment without preparation. Don't just wing it. Don't free wheel it. You'll either end up saying very trite things or saying too much or saying things you wish you never had said because upon careful reflection you said things that really weren't warranted by the passage. So just as you would not stand up and preach without preparation, don't comment without preparation. Second negative, don't comment too much or too long. You are not giving an exposition of the passage, you are reading the passage, making only such comments as are necessary to render the reading more understandable and also to extract where appropriate the principles, the major lessons of the passage that will be helpful to your people. And I hope you have an example, though not perfect, at least a viable, workable example of that in the way in which we attempt to handle that here, each man doing it a little differently. But I think you see the common denominators. When we're approaching a new book, we give a little poor man's mini introduction to the book. It means many times that I go back and read my standard introductions on the book. And I may read, I may read 20, 30 pages for just two minutes of commenting. But again, our end is the edification of our people. And I tell you, brethren, when it all pays off is when you can stand like I could last Sunday morning and have our people open up Titus and say, all right, what does it say about how the older women are to train the younger women and see our people expound the scriptures like that? I tell you, that's when you say, Lord, help me to, help me to be yet more vile. We must be doing something right. I came home and told my wife, I said, I trust our people as a body of expositors any time. I said, someone's going to have to be a pretty clever heretic to ever lead them down a path as long as they read the scriptures critically like that. Well, that hasn't just happened, brethren. Part of that is the fruit of the public reading of the word of God and with the judicious, well-planned comments over 20 plus years that has furnished our people bit by bit with an ability without having to go into the original languages just with their English Bibles to know when someone's going off the rails and saying the Bible says something it doesn't say. And then the final negative is don't comment at the expense of the flow of thought. And this is where you have to exercise a discipline over your own spirit. There may be a particular phrase that in the midst of reading just leaps out at you and you want to stop and preach a mini-sermon. But remember, the people's minds and hearts may not be where yours is. So don't comment at the expense of the flow of thought. If there's a paragraph, a unit of thought, and you're going to comment on something at the front end of it, read the whole paragraph. Then go back and say, I only wish to highlight this one simple principle. Here in the first part of the paragraph, in verse 7, the apostle says, or the prophet says, and then highlight that particular thing. Now, if the word of God is meat and drink to the souls of your people, then one of the things that they ought to look forward to every Lord's Day 
is that time when the word of God, which is their meat and drink, is going to be read and commented upon in such a way that they go home filled with gratitude, not only that your prayers took them into the presence of God, your preaching brought God to them, but your reading of the scriptures and your comments upon it brought them into a fuller understanding of the ways of God. And I wish we had kept a chronicle over the years of the way in which God has providentially used the public consecutive reading of the Word of God sometimes more than the sermon on a given day. And people have said, Pastor, if you only knew. Of all the portions of the Word of God, that particular one read this morning addressed my case. I was ready to go home and have dealings with God or ready to go home rejoicing. God had spoken in the ordinary reading of his word. So this ought not to be something, brethren, that is left to the last moment or left to the uh, impulse or left to shoddiness, but as an integral part of our responsibility to make the worship of God as glorious and as dignified and God-honoring as possible, we labor at cultivating the ability to read the scriptures well to read them in such a way that over the years our people become appreciative and full of expectation for this discipline of our public gathering. All right, our time is gone.